I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. And thank you for listening. I'm your host, Cullen, and you're listening to Cauldron Podcast. And today we've got an interesting story about Battle of Hamburger Hill or the Battle of Hill 937. Before we get to that, obviously, I want to apologize for the delay in between episodes. I got a really interesting email from a listener who was just talking about different things that I should be keeping in mind and kind of maybe focusing in on a little bit more, and that feedback was really helpful, but it meant that I had to go back and kind of retangle with this episode and rewrite some of it. That's a long way for me to just go about saying thank you for your patience and enjoy the Battle of Hamburger Hill. I hope you learned something new. I certainly did. If you like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and give us a rating and review on iTunes, I will be eternally grateful to you. All right, let's get to it. Exactly 50 years ago in Vietnam and the Battle of Hamburger Hill. By 1969, the Vietnam War was at its kind of almost penultimate stage. You had gone through all these uh, major struggles uh, like Tet and Hugh and Quezon, the the quintessential moments, and it was reaching a point where it it was a matter of breaking for one side or the other. The United States had been sending military advisors to the Vietnam area since as early as 1950, and it became more and more involved, or the United States became more and more involved in the politics and warfare of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia in 1955. And that would run eventually all the way straight through to 1975 in some form or another. So Vietnam is obviously one of the most convoluted and tumultuous and and really hard to grasp wars of recent years. So I'm not going to try and explain all the, the various ins and outs and the nuances of the Vietnam War in this synopsis. Suffice it to say that by 1969, the United States forces and the ARVN were finding it extremely hard to achieve a decisive victory in the field. So even though they were able to uh, outlast or beat down or win against the North Vietnamese forces in various contests, it still never felt like they had achieved a decisive victory. And that created a number of situations that were difficult to kind of maneuver. The number one factor at this point was the, the constant 
the constantly growing pressure that the home front was putting on the politicians and therefore the politicians were putting on the military forces. And basically everybody was demanding a win without realizing that a win might not necessarily look how they expected. But in Vietnam, warfare had changed, diplomacy had changed, the, the world had obviously changed, and the victories that were being achieved in Vietnam were in no way looked or felt or sounded like the victories of World War II. So that's a long way to say, essentially, if any of the listeners out there would like to write like a, a short little few paragraph synopsis of Vietnam, just because they, they feel like I'm not doing it justice here in the run-up, that's totally cool. I'd love to read it. I'd love your permission to put it up on social media and just have it there. And if any of you listeners have particular interests in uh, various wars, I think from here on out, I'm not going to do a full in-depth synopsis of the history before the battle that we're going to talk about. I think it takes up too much time. Instead, what I think would be kind of cool is if the listeners out there that have interest in certain wars want to write stuff up, I will post it, and that'll just kind of always be there as a little touch point for everybody to go back to and get a little bit more info on the the, the fuller war that the battle which we are talking about will be taking place in. Okay, so that being said, let's dive into Hamburger Hill and let's get a little bit of an idea of the the context within which the Battle of Hamburger Hill happened. Operation Dewey Canyon had unearthed a huge and, and extremely well-developed North Vietnamese road network, which was capable of pushing a thousand trucks through the area of the Aishoa Valley. And, and Dewey was, Operation Dewey Canyon was a great success, and it cleared the area and was was responsible for capturing thousands of, of weapons and supplies, and even over a million small arms rounds were captured during Operation Dewey Canyon. And like most cases in Vietnam, once the Americans were successful in their operation, the area was secured, fighting died down, and then all of a sudden, like a whack-a-mole game, somewhere else in Vietnam, there all of a sudden became a huge uh, hot zone, and a lot of attention and force was diverted to putting that little, you know, putting that fire out. And so once that was out, then it would pop up somewhere else, and, and, and so on and so forth throughout the Vietnam War. The U.S. military found itself kind of constantly diverting its attention and diverting its uh, forces and strength, trying to put out all these little hotspots. A lot of the times what would happen is you'd end up fighting over the same territory or area or, or valley or whatever it might be that you were fighting over eight months ago, 12 months ago, 24 months ago. And because the war was so long, that just kind of happened with some regularity. So after Operation Dewey Canyon secured the Aishaw or Aishoa or Valley, the area once again started to ha see a buildup in roads and infiltration through the Laotian border, 
which was extremely close. I think from Hamburger Hill, I believe it's only like a mile, um, a mile away from the border. So to combat the influx of North Vietnamese supplies that were coming through the road system into the Aishoa Valley, and also to protect the Hue Quang Tri area, and obviously I'm trying to pronounce these as best I can, but the Hue Quang Tri area was a number of towns and cities, not a, a huge amount of population centers in this area, but these areas that were there still need to be protected. So Lieutenant General Richard Stilwell ordered there to be a campaign to safeguard those population centers and also dismantle and destroy the roads and North Vietnamese supplies through the Aisha Valley. Apache Snow was part two of a three-part series of operations. Apache Snow followed up Massachusetts Striker, and Operation Montgomery Rendezvous would eventually follow Apache Snow. And the whole purpose of all three of these operations was to clear that Ashoa Valley and keep it well-protected and secure. The first objective of Operation Apache Snow was the Mountain of Dong Ap Bai, which the locals called the Mountain of the Crouching Beast. To the American forces and the planners of this operation, it was called or known as Hill 937, which is simply a reference to the mountain's height above sea level in meters. The general idea was that the attack would be a coordinated strike by 10 battalions of both U.S. Army and ARVN forces. ARVN stands for Army of the Republic of Vietnam. For Apache Snow, there were three airborne infantry battalions of the 101st Airborne Division. The commander was Major General Melvin Zayas, and the units were the 3rd Brigades, 3rd Battalion, 187th Infantry, the 2nd Battalion, 501st, and the 1st Battalion, 506th Infantry, all eventually would be in heavy fighting in and around Hamburger Hill. The two battalions of the ARVN were the 1st Infantry Division. This was a force that had been recently attached uh, or assigned to the 3rd Brigade in a support role. Eventually, we would see or there will be uh, the involvement of a number of other forces, including the 9th Marine Regiment and a uh, squadron of 5th Cavalry and the 3rd ARVN Regiment. So there's a number of forces, both the United States and the ARVN, that take place in this battle or take a role in this battle. But the predominance of the fighting, as it had been throughout the Vietnam War up to this point, would fall on the shoulders of the U.S. military. Facing the U.S. and ARVN forces on Hill 937 were the PAVN, which is the People's Army of Vietnam. 
And among those infantry forces that the PAVN were putting on the hill, there was a group called the 29th NVA, which is a regiment of the Pride of Ho Chi Minh. And this is a veteran, it's a very seasoned force of infantry who were uh, veterans of the Battle of Hue in 1968, which is one of the Vietnam War's most, if not the most, bloody conflict in the entire war. The idea that the PAVN were working with, or their general strategy, was not so much victory in the field. Their, their whole ethos, or the way that they fought, was about survival. If they could outlast the Americans, then they would eventually win. It really didn't matter what the attrition rates were, because each individual American soldier that they were able to kill was worth 10 PAVN soldiers in terms of not so much obviously manpower, but in the ramifications and the effects that, that that one individual American death would have back on the home front. That allowed them to play a little fast and loose with how they used their infantry and how they used their reserves. Professor Meredith Lair of George Mason University put it really well when she said, quote, they know they don't have to win the war, they just have to outlast the U.S. And she went on, quote, it's not about achieving a decisive victory, but to inflict damage and wreak havoc with the political situation in the United States, end quote. So her her statement's very clear. It's, it's the idea that the North Vietnamese were using was something that kind of mirrored what you saw with the, the German forces at the end of World War I and with the Russian forces throughout World War II, where we will just throw as many possible human beings at this problem and it will, over time, solve itself. The, the Americans back home don't have the guts for this fight, and so we know that eventually they will bag out because they can't stick to it. The Vietnamese, on the other hand, they had no choice. There was no place for them to go. And so just fighting until the very end was the only option. How they went about using their resources and their manpower to do that, though, was something that they, they made a conscious choice about midway or, or two-thirds of the way through the war, that it wasn't about beating the U.S. forces in the field. It was about killing as many Americans so that back home, the Americans there, not involved in the fighting, but very much attuned to what was happening, would start to put pressure on the political system to put an end to the war. If one of your goals is to kill as many humans as possible and do it as efficiently as possible, then your best tactic or your best strategy is to force your enemy to try and take a position that is heavily defended. The defense always has the force multiplier, so they're able to really set a a series of traps and lines that the enemy has to get over. And in the process of getting over or through those traps and lines, they have to go through shooting fields of fire and, and killing zones. And really, they just have to try and weather the storm in order to take that heavily defended position. Right here at the Battle of Hamburger Hill or Hill 937, 
we have exactly that. The position that the Vietnamese had in the Shoah Valley was extremely deeply fortified with strong bunkers. There were uh, a series of trenches dug. There were strongly hidden or very well hidden in camouflage spider holes, which if you go on the Instagram, we have a few pictures of those, but they're incredibly deadly little traps where essentially you have a well camouflaged little firing spot that has a tunnel underneath it so the enemy pops up fires away as soon as the americans are focused on that one little position they go and try and blow it out but the enemy the north vietnamese has already escaped through the tunnel and is backfiring from another position so it's all over this hill there are these little trap door kind of situations and they're horrifying if you actually look at them uh the 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 size of the, these tunnels. I'm a fairly large guy, but so I just being in small places freaks me out. I can't imagine how these people were able to do it. Not just the the tunnel rats of the U.S. forces, but the North Vietnamese soldiers were living in these tunnels. A lot of these tunnel networks, there were there were barracks, there were mess halls, there were all sorts of. And, and by no means am I saying that they were like nice mess halls or barracks or anything like that. They were just little dugouts through the tunnel system, but they were so cramped, so claustrophobic, so dark and dirty, and and really just it blows your mind that anybody was able to get in and out of them. And and know where the hell they were. It seems like when they started fortifying this hill 937, the North Vietnamese forces understood the point. They understood the goal, and that was to create a, a hill that was just essentially a meat grinder. Added to the man-made defenses that the PAVN put on Hill 937 were just the geographical features of the hill itself. So Hill 937 is about 3,000 foot tall. Uh, it dominates the northern end of the remote Shoah Valley. It's in a region in northern, it's in the northwest sector of South Vietnam. So it's got a, a, a large number of finger-like ridges that ran out from the summit. And some of these finger-like ridges were reaching somewhere around a little over 900 meters in height. The whole area was extremely steep and hard to maneuver on, very, very poor sight lines and kind of shifting ground, very difficult to traverse or try and plow your way through. Hill 937 was extremely snug to the Laotian border. It's only about a mile away to the west. The primary significance of Hill 937 and the Aishoa Valley itself was that it was an integral part of the famous Ho Chi Minh Trail. So the valley is about 45 kilometers long, and this acts as a pipeline or a tributary from the main Ho Chi Minh Trail, feeding supplies into South Vietnam for the PAVN forces. The area itself, as I said earlier, was fought over by both sides over and over throughout the whole war. 
the Ho Chi Minh Trail ran through North and South Vietnam and also through Laos and Cambodia. It moved material and supplies, men and guns and ammunition, food stores, all of the different things that you might need to keep an army in the field through all these countries all the way down into South Vietnam. It was extremely difficult to to cut or destroy because of the dense jungle. The terrain itself worked as a great buffer and protection for the Ho Chi Minh Trail. As the jungle protected the Ho Chi Minh Trail, the jungle also worked to protect Hill 937. The whole area was densely forested. It had extremely tall sawtooth elephant grass, really thick bamboo groves that were almost impenetrable, and in some places you had double and triple canopy jungle, which would, as we will see in the future, had an extreme effect on the ability for the U.S. forces to call in air and artillery strikes, which just adds to the general confusion, the unknown or the fog of war. Because of all these geographic features and the jungle and all of the different aspects of of fighting in South Vietnam, the reconnaissance that was able to be done on Hill 937 really was not ideal. There, There was very little understanding of exactly what was on the hill because the only way to tell or to get any real concrete information was by sending out combat patrols. So they have a limited vision. They have a limited amount of of information that they're actually able to obtain. And when you are dealing with prisoners and trying to pull information from prisoners, the information is always extremely suspect, whether or not because the prisoner is being forced to tell you what what they think you want to hear, what they were told to tell you, or what they actually saw. The people that are interrogating that prisoner have to decide or decipher what's true, and often in war that's, that's very, very difficult, especially in the field. When you can't really tell what's on the hill, you have to kind of make educated guesses. And with Hill 937, there was very little info about the size of the enemy forces on the hill and where they were. So location and size, which are extremely important when you are dealing with attacking a defended position, were something that the U.S. forces really had no idea about. To add to just the the physical restrictions of getting information, the enemy was smart. The, The PAVN forces were extremely smart on Hill 937. They exercised radio silence throughout their fortifying of the hill. And all of their positions were extremely well camouflaged. So they used the lay of the land and the natural surroundings that they were within to protect and disguise their positions and their strong points. The U.S. forces that were going to be fighting uphill 937 really had no idea what they were walking into. The plan to secure the Aishoa Valley was simple. Basically, the U.S. forces would pound several potential LZs or landing zones with artillery, Cobra attack helicopters, and some close air support. 
Then the plan was to land some crack airborne units and move in and scour the area for PAVN, killing and capturing these uh, enemy as they went. Five battalions were each assigned a sector of the Ashaw Valley. U.S. forces planned to cut off the enemy's retreat into Laos and drive the PAVN from the valley completely. Again, don't forget the Laotian border is about a mile to the west of the valley, so it's very close to where the actual fighting is happening. The thought was with so many battalions for the PAVN to deal with that the PAVN would be unable to mass all in one place. And conversely, when a a U.S. unit or a United States allied unit made contact with the enemy, they were to basically hold their position and just stay in place until support arrived. The PAVN was well known throughout the war for fighting fiercely at the point of initial contact or where the battle began. And then they would just essentially melt away once the fighting got really, really hot and heavy. And in this particular situation, it was believed by the higher-ups, by the brass, that the PAVN in the valley would follow suit and just do what they've been doing throughout the war. Lieutenant Colonel Weldon Honeycutt of the 3rd Battalion, 187th Regiment of the 101st Airborne, was responsible for Hill 937. The 3rd Battalion, 187th, by the way, was no slouch of a unit. According to Wikipedia, the 3rd Battalion, 187th, would end the war with the most decorations of any airborne battalion, and it went on to receive a couple of presidential citations and medals of valor as a unit. So 3rd Battalion, 187th, 101st, is a a serious, serious asset for the U.S. forces in the Ashaw Valley. Their job was to clear Hill 1937, and moving out of the landing zone that they had dropped into, the, uh, they basically, the men had to cut across two and a half miles of extremely dense vegetation. On the 10th of May, the soldiers of the 3rd 187th were ready for a fight. They drop in, and now they've got to basically get to their objective, which turned out to be quite a bit more of a struggle than originally foreseen. The higher-ups had anticipated somewhere around maybe a few hours to a couple of days to get this whole objective taken care of, and as we will see, they were extremely, extremely wrong. Determined and confident in his men, Honeycutt believed that they could clear their objective without much issue at all. By May 14th, the whole operation was moving along, but it was moving very slowly. They had been there for about four days and had yet to clear the hill, let alone uh, finish their entire objective. The, The gradient of the hill itself, so the incline of the hill, made fighting very, very difficult, and the jungle was both attacking the U.S. forces and protecting the PAVN. It was incredibly dense. It was almost like an enemy that the U.S. forces were fighting in and of itself. An overall picture had begun to be painted for Honeycutt and the Brass, and it was not a good one. Clearly, the PAVN had ringed the hill and the surrounding area in extremely heavy defenses. 
Well hidden and robust, these bunkers, trenches, and spider holes needed to be rooted out one at a time. Spider holes were these friggin' insanely small little openings that had kind of a camouflage top, and it was a prearranged uh, firing position for Vietnamese soldiers who would essentially wait for American troops to pass them, then they'd pop open the trap door, let off a burst of rounds, then f- drop back down into their tunnel and move along to the next position or hide, move on to a bunker or whatever it might be. They were, so, they were very, very hard to find or keep track of, and then also they were extremely dangerous to clear because it required a man to go into the spider hole and basically become what they called a tunnel rat, move along, and, and hopefully root out the enemy as he went through. Hill 937 is just layered in these bunkers and trenches and spider holes. And while these defensive positions are giving aid and succor to each other, the airborne units are finding it extremely hard to support each other. The the denseness and the thickness of the vegetation is making sight lines really, really difficult. Honeycutt's units are even having to pull men from attacking the objective just to secure their own rear and flanks from surprise PAVN assault. On top of the chaos of the hill and attacking and having random trap doors pop up with the enemy firing at you and bunkers and trenches that had to be cleared one by one, the U.S. forces were also finding it extremely difficult to be successfully resupplied via air, and trying to get support through the air was, was almost impossible. Any attempt was heavily harassed with RPGs and small arms fires pouring down on the helicopter that was trying to land and bring supplies, ammunition, and more men into the fight. The fighting on Hill 937 was proving extremely hard and extremely arduous. Honeycutt was under the impression that by May 15th, the first 506th would arrive to assist in assaulting the hill. His men were fighting very hard and they were doing a great job, but they, they made these constant attacks up the hill and nothing was working. At one point, it took Delta Company five hours to slog a mere 500 meters, which for them would normally be nothing. I mean, that for them is a pretty quick cakewalk, but under constant PAVN fire, it took them about one hour for every 100 meters. On the night of the 14th of May, the U.S. soldiers sat down and counted the PAVN campfires that began popping up all around the hill in three giant rings going up to the very top of the hill they counted over 100 fires this gave them a little look-see into exactly what they were facing a much larger much stronger force than they were prepared to handle on the next morning, May 15th, Honeycutt was waiting to hear the good news. He was, again, still hoping for the first 506, or the Currahees, to arrive. That good news never came. The first 506 was desperately trying to make it to Hill 937 to help squeeze the PAVN from multiple sides, but they were, yet again, fighting against an active enemy in the form of the jungle. The jungle made movement extremely 
treacherous at best. In fact, the Karahis would only make it to Hill 937 in time for the final assault a full five days later than they were expected. As the time passed, U.S. ground forces made dozens of deadly assaults on the hill, all to no avail. All day, the airborne men slashed their way uphill only to withdraw at dusk, again under heavy enemy fire. To try and expose and obliterate the unseen enemy, tons of bombs, tear gas, and napalm were used against men and jungle alike. The haunting, cratered landscape was, by the end of the battle, as many of the men mentioned, like something from the Western Front of World War I. And if you look at any of the pictures that, if you go to the Instagram or the Facebook, I posted a number of these. If you look at the pictures, it's very, very clear that they were, they were fighting through essentially a World War I battlefield, only on a hill. Even after the hill had been moonscaped by explosions and napalm, exposing PAVN bunkers, fighting really did remain fairly slow. Even though they could see what they had to attack, they still had to go bunker to bunker and clear individually and under duress each position that the PAVN held. Unlike in past battles, like we talked about earlier, the PAVN on Hill 937 was clearly not melting back into the jungle. For some reason, they were making a stand on this hill and had designed it as a death trap for U.S. soldiers. The PAVN were actually reinforcing the hill from the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos. So the whole time that the battle is happening, the soldiers that the U.S. forces are fighting are only getting stronger as the U.S. forces are getting depleted. By the 16th, the once-confident U.S. forces began to crack a little bit. There had been constant attacks that were each day met with failure as these soldiers had to trudge their way back down to the, the base of the hill and think about the next day's attack going up. And then on top of that, there were a number of devastating friendly fire incidents that had really worked at fraying the collective minds of the U.S. soldiers. It's not surprising to think about, but and it, it's certainly understandable, but discontent and a, a certain amount of demoralization started to creep in across the airborne forces. Just like today in 1969, the media could sniff out a good story very well. And first on the scene for the media was AP reporter Jay Sharbutt, who could tell that there was a real human drama occurring at Hill 937. He traveled there and started talking to a lot of the men on the ground, and his one of the most interesting quotes I saw, he quoted a man saying, quote, That damn blackjack won't stop until he kills every one of us, end quote. I found that quote pretty interesting, mainly because he's referring to his commanding officer. Blackjack is Colonel Honeycutt. Already we're getting men talking about the the kind of bloodthirsty incompetence of the military leadership, and it's going right to the reporters, and then from there it's going right back home to the people back in the United States. Another interesting quote to come out of the Battle for Hill 937 was from a fresh-faced 19-year-old Sergeant James Spears. Quote, Have you ever been inside a hamburger machine? 
We just got cut to pieces by extremely accurate machine gun fire. End quote. From this simple but horrifying analogy, the Battle of Hill 937 gets its name, the Battle of Hamburger Hill. Nearing the breaking point, it was decided that the 18th would be the day to carry the hill. Two battalions, including the 3rd 187th, again would hit the hill from the north and the south. The idea was that this would keep the 29th Regiment of the PAVN divided and unsure, so they'd be on top of the hill, swinging back and forth between the two separate attacks coming from two totally opposite directions. The fighting was genuinely ferocious. At one point, the U.S. forces were only a few hundred feet from the hill crest itself. There was a lot of trading of small arms fire and grenades being thrown from side to side, and it seemed like the battle was, was actually going to be over this time. Then, Mother Nature stepped in to call a timeout. A massive deluge of rain and thunder made coordination from the air and movement on the ground completely impossible. The assault was called off. With the press on the site watching, recording, and scribbling, the U.S. leadership decided things had gone along too far. The 3rd 187th needed to get out, and three fresh battalions would be committed to help swamp the defenses of the PAVN completely. Honeycutt learned of his unit's removal and just shy of flat refused to be replaced. His men, he thought, had gone through hell to take that hill, and he'd be damned if they were taken out right before the end. Now, on this one, I'm not sure if his men would actually thank him for keeping them there. The fighting on the hill had been extremely costly for the men of the 3rd 187th, whose, quote, losses had been severe, with approximately 320 killed or wounded, including more than 60% of the 450 troops who had assaulted into the valley. Two of its four company commanders and eight of its 12 platoon leaders had become casualties, end quote. Honeycutt persuaded General Zayas, the man in overall command, that the 3rd 187th was good to go. All it needed was a little help and a little reinforcement. On May 20th, The final day of the battle, four battalions, including companies of the 3rd 187th and the 1st 506th, which finally had gotten to the hill, were in position surrounding Hill 937. Two hours of air attack and 90 minutes of heavy artillery pounding was followed by a full-on assault of the hill. Two hours later... The 3rd 187th had finally crested the hilltop and the process of clearing PAVN leftovers began. The hill that had taken 10 days to climb took only a few hours to clear. Mopping up took the rest of the day, but by 1700, the battle for Hamburger Hill was over. The fight for its legacy was about to begin. After thousands of pounds of bombs, literal tons of napalm and tear gas, dozens of airstrikes, and countless small arms rounds, 
Hill 937 fell. The conversation that followed victory was different, though. It was new. The question most Americans were asking now was, quote, at what cost, end quote. This would soon be followed by the infinitely more complicated question of why. The cost in men was relatively small, but each American killed in action had a significant impact at home. 72 Americans died taking Hill 937. A number of those were the outcome of friendly fire attacks caused by the dense forest canopy. 370 Americans were wounded in the 10-day battle, with the 3rd 187th bearing the brunt. Professor James Wright of Dartmouth estimates that the 187th, all four companies that were engaged, suffered 50 to 75% casualties. What did these American boys die for became the question everyone back home was asking. Well, for starters, the 7th and 8th Battalions of the PAVN 29th Regiment had been utterly destroyed. PAVN casualties are almost always guesses because they had a tendency to drag bodies into the jungle or into tunnels underneath the battlefield. In some of the tunnel complexes, makeshift mortuaries were actually found during the process of clearing out the tunnel system. So you had these poor American soldiers that went down. They were under, you know, constant stress thinking that they were going to get killed. And then they'd stumble upon a little dugout with, you know, five or six or ten bodies in it. Just horrible stuff to imagine. Without being able to guarantee or get a concrete number, it looks as though the PAVN lost between 630 and 1,000 soldiers. The 630 number comes from the actual bodies that were found and counted, and this was done by the U.S. soldiers so they know for a fact that there were at least 630 PAVN dead. Another 400 were probably what goes unaccounted. So there were a lot of men that died in tunnels that were blown up or collapsed in on them. There's probably a large number of people that were incinerated by the napalm. And then there were also the bodies of soldiers of the PAVN who had crawled away or were dragged away into the jungle and died but were never found. The PAVN had also been able to reinforce throughout Laos during the battle. So it's likely that they were also funneling the wounded back the same way. So if you factor in all those different things, around a thousand casualties seems very conservative when when you consider everything. The cost was a very, very bitter pill, but by no means was it extreme. What happened after the victory on Hamburger Hill is what actually fanned the flames of of that grand question, why? General Zayas, again, the man who was in charge originally of the whole operation, was replaced at the end of May as CEO of the 101st Airborne. His replacement, Major General John Wright, abandoned Hill 937 on June 5th, a tick over two weeks after the, quote, meat grinder, end quote, of a battle was won, U.S. forces were giving the ground away. 
In Wright's defense, though, the operation in the Asia Valley was winding down and the hill was never the point. It was always the PAVN. This situation where the U.S. forces are successful in capturing a position and then fairly close after that success, that position is abandoned, actually happened with a good amount of regularity in Vietnam. With most modern warfare, fronts are fluid and situations are kind of constantly developing. And it's a lot more that the target is the enemy itself than it is like it was in the past where physical terrain is the goal. More often than not, the living, breathing enemy is that goal. Most people in everyday life think of wars or battles as contests for real estate, like in in the Middle Ages where you're fighting for a castle or uh, in the Civil War, whatever, you're fighting for a particular hill. And that's not wrong. Terrain definitely plays a huge role and is probably one of, if not the most important deciding factors in a, a battle. But it's just not the, it's not always the goal or the strategic aim or objective of fighting a particular enemy in a particular place. In a country like Vietnam, with very few significant population centers, there are very few obvious targets that fights would be uh, would be positioned over. So you're not actually fighting for a particular city, you're trying to clear an area. And the people are, again, what you're fighting for. In Vietnam, you're trying to to eliminate as many of the PAVN forces as you possibly can. Holding a particular position doesn't help you do that. In fact, it might hurt you. In Vietnam, holding a city or a position just made you a target. The best example was actually fairly close to where Hill 937 was, and that's where the Battle of Quezon was fought. This was a, a huge siege that lasted 77 days. U.S. forces held an area that was was completely pointless, and they were just being pounded by mortar fire and artillery and, and all sorts of uh, incoming enemy fire for, for a complete 77-day siege. And the constant fighting and bombardment made Quezon a, a true hellscape. And somehow the American forces inside the perimeter held on probably through just sheer force of will, but it proved that holding a position in Vietnam does not make you necessarily in, it does not put you in a better uh, overall position. In fact, it can put you in a very, very dangerous situation. So it's likely that Hill 937's abandonment was a wise, if not particularly appreciated, attempt at avoiding another caisson. Whatever the reasons for the withdrawal from Hamburger Hill, the media had told such a harrowing tale that there could be no justification in the public's eyes for abandoning Hill 937. Harbutt, the AP reporter that we first talked about on the scene, described what he saw. Quote, the paratroopers came down the mountain, their green shirts darkened with sweat, their weapons gone, their bandages stained brown and red with mud and blood, end quote. 
in late June, not long after the battle, Life magazine gave a striking visual aid to America for what was happening in Vietnam. 241 photos were published, each of them an American killed in one week in Vietnam. Only five of the images in the magazine issue were casualties of Hamburger Hill, but that didn't matter. The public could now put a face to a place and a story as well. Between the pictures of shattered survivors, vivid tales from journalists, and talk of meat grinders from the men, Hamburger Hill struck a chord. Outrage and confusion from the public soon were given voice by politicians. Young Massachusetts Senator Ted Kennedy vehemently denounced the battle on the floor of the Senate itself. On May 20th, the day the hill was finally taken, Kennedy used words like madness, senseless, and irresponsible to describe the strategy used in the battle. Now, there is probably a joke about Chappaquiddick in there somewhere, but I am not going to make it. Kennedy continued, quote, Symptomatic of a mentality and a policy that requires immediate attention. American boys are too valuable to be sacrificed to a false sense of military pride. End quote. Kennedy's angry voice was echoed by fellow Senators George McGovern and Stephen M. Young. The criticism for the war had up until now been mostly broad and general. Geopolitical questions about boundaries, containment, and grand policy. Was it America's place to police Asia? What about the Soviets? By the late 1960s, the war's cost both in men and material became more openly discussed. The civilian plight in Vietnam and immorality of the fight were even widely debated. Now, after the Battle of Hill 937, the nuts and bolts of military decisions were publicly questioned by the press, the people, and the politicians like never before. Military judgment and the tactical intelligence of commanders in the field became things that anyone and everyone scrutinized. The American people demanded to know why. Why were we on that hill at all? Why did we sacrifice so much only to leave so quickly? What were you military wonks even thinking? Now, to these questions, they never really received an answer, at least not ones that they, as, as outsiders, as witnesses, as, as laypeople, not participants or professionals, could really understand or ever truly accept. Bob Harkins, the CEO of Alpha Company in the third 187th, was asked, quote, Sir, do you think we did the right thing? End quote. He responded, quote, Yeah, we did the right thing. To hell with Kennedy. He doesn't know what we're doing. End quote. Clarifying nothing really, this kind of answer does give voice to the frustration of the men on the ground, though. Even before the end of the war, enlisted men and officers alike began to talk of being handcuffed. The argument was that the people making the rules didn't know how to win the game. 
this kind of hostility towards, quote, Monday morning quarterbacking, end quote, is understandable and can also be somewhat misguided. It's the job of both politician and public, however nasty and seemingly ill-informed that they might be, to question wars and battles and the fighting of them. Especially in Vietnam, the questions continued, with less and less answers being given or explained. Probably the most honest, albeit most frustrating, answer came from General Zayas himself. When asked why the battle was fought on Hill 937, Zayas said, quote, The only significance of Hamburger Hill was the fact that there were enemy on Hamburger Hill, and that is why we fought him there, end quote. Unintentionally, this somewhat terse response was, in my opinion, probably the best explanation for both the battle and the whole war itself. As we talked about earlier, the goal was never the hill. It was always the PAVN soldiers on the hill. And until the PAVN soldiers on the hill were eliminated, the Battle of Hamburger Hill would go on. Once PAVN were not on the hill, it no longer was necessary to keep. Holding it may have actually been more dangerous for U.S. soldiers than to discard the hill altogether. The confusion on this point has led to a great deal of hostility and muddy debate. With the pressure mounting from the politicians, the press, and the public, the Joint Chiefs and the commanders on the ground in Vietnam began to shift tactics. General Creighton Williams Abrams replaced General Westmoreland, and Abrams believed in the hearts and minds approach. Westmoreland had used a maximum pressure policy against the PAVN to no avail. His search-and-destroy strategy seemed only to run U.S. forces ragged, chasing the mist-like enemy all over Vietnam. Abrams implemented a protective reaction system, using clear-and-hold operations with counterinsurgency efforts to strengthen the ARVN itself and the civilians at large. The goal was to train the South Vietnamese well enough that fewer and fewer Americans would be needed to protect them. The shaving down of both the scope of operations and the size of the U.S. forces in Vietnam itself was a direct byproduct of these changes. All these shifts were packaged together by the Nixon administration as the Vietnamization policy. President Nixon wanted the war conducted with a minimum of American deaths. He also wanted the ARVN to take on a leading role in all future combat operations. By August of that year, the president had ordered the first 25,000 U.S. troops back to the United States. This trickle of men returning would soon become a flood, as from the high water mark of 540,000 troops in Vietnam, the United States, by June of 1972, only had 49,000 left. The next year, by the Paris Peace Accords, that number was cut almost in half to 25,000. From the Battle of Hamburger Hill, or Hill 937 on, 
there is a definite shift. U.S. withdrawal after this nasty little fight over seemingly nothing was years away, but it was now inevitable. Just a quick side note before we wrap this up. The ARVN forces involved at the Battle of Hamburger Hill were definitely there, but I could only find brief mentions of them and the kind of sporadic way that they were mentioned never really seemed to be very uh, strong in sources. So for this reason, I kind of didn't want to get too deeply involved with them. The other reason that I kind of uh, stepped away was that it seemed like they were pretty negatively recounted, and I didn't want it seem uh, I didn't want it to seem as though I was picking on them or anything like that. But one account of an action that they were involved in was from, uh, just to cover all my bases, the ARVN had the 2nd Battalion, 3rd Regiment on Hamburger Hill for the final attack. They were meant to engage or scout out a lightly defended enemy position on the hill crest. Either they were ordered or chose to fall back. I've seen this reported differently in two different sources, so it's kind of unclear. But because of this, a chance to threaten the PAVN force facing the 3rd 187th slipped away. Now, that definitely affected some individual outcomes, but it didn't affect the outcome of the battle itself. So there you have it. That's what I could put together of the ARVN involvement in the battle as a whole. All right, that is the Battle of Hamburger Hill. Thank you so much for your patience and for hanging in there as we shifted things around and tried to iron out the way that the show is formed. I really, really appreciate you listening to this, and I appreciate all your feedback, so much so that I actually change how I kind of produce the show and write it and and the way that the show is formed so if you have something you want changed or fixed or you like better or don't like, let me know and I will try and work it in. I hope you learned something about this battle about Vietnam. I know that I did. I'm not a huge Vietnam aficionado or I, I'm not a huge Vietnam buff. I don't really have a ton of experience of reading on Vietnam, so... Any little that I get is very informative. This week, I definitely found that uh, the questions about Vietnam and the interest in Vietnam is still very high and very controversial. So thank you for uh, interacting and checking out the Instagram and the Facebook and all that. As always, if you want interesting images, photos, videos, things like that, go to Instagram or Facebook and check out Cauldron Podcast. Also, if you have questions, comments, concerns, or corrections, please email me on the website or DM me on the social media things. I will definitely answer anything that you have. I will respond, and in the next episode, I will make corrections if you see them. Let me know. If I don't hear them, I won't know that they're wrong. So I, I need your help to make sure that we get things as accurate as possible. 
Anytime someone helps the show, I feel kind of compelled to give them a shout out. And one of our patrons on Patreon, his name is Brian, gave some excellent feedback last week. In fact, I was halfway through this episode when I got his show notes and they were so good, I delayed the release to better incorporate them. And I went through and kind of made a little checklist and I've got it up on the wall in the recording studio so that I can kind of remind myself of what I'm trying to do. So a big time thank you and a salute to Brian. Well done and thanks for your help. Check out the Patreon where uh, you can really get one-on-one kind of interaction with me just like I did with Brian there. And you also get some interesting tier like uh, uh, rewards. So you get to pick a battle or a weapon or something for us to do a deep dive on. All right. That's enough of that. Next up, we hit the frigid high seas. We're in the shadow of the dreadnoughts. The Kaiser won a victory and lost his dream. 